Did you know a podcast episode like this can provide literally dozens of marketing content assets for your business? It's brought to you by Content Monster, your go-to for engaging marketing content, like this podcast or remote video production. It's not just a podcast, it's your marketing powerhouse. Visit contentmonster.com to learn more. That's contentmonsta.com. Welcome to Season 2 of Under the Hood, a podcast series brought to you by Synapse. In this series hosted by Synapse founder and CEO Sankat Patak, Under the Hood takes a deep dive into various challenges and opportunities in fintech. Topics range from technical design and architecture to regulatory and policy challenges. Hello and welcome to Under the Hood. Today, we're going to be talking about the OCC and Blue Ridge ruling that came out a few weeks ago. And to have this conversation with me today, I have Kevin Harrington, who is the president and CEO of Lineage Bank, and Neil, who is the chief legal officer of Sava Credit. Guys, welcome. Thanks for joining me on Under the Hood today. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, uh, I think it'd be great, guys, if you just introduce yourselves for the listeners. <laughs> And uh, maybe just tell them a little bit more about what do you do your day to day, and um, then we'll just jump in. Neil, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, Neil Peretz, and um, I was formerly in the Department of Justice's corporate financial section, so I was kind of on the wholesale side of consumer finance, representing uh, entities like Ginnie Mae and FHA, um, and also appearing in bankruptcy court often during the uh, prior financial crisis. And then uh, after that, I left to help start uh, the primary consumer financial services regulator in the U.S., the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I was asked to go help start the Office of Enforcement there. In uh, more recent years, I've been in-house at various financial technology companies and uh, partnering with banks to launch a variety of different products, uh, both small business lending and consumer-facing products. Kevin, what about you? Oh, <clears throat> wait a second. No, you came from the CFPB. Oh, didn't realize we had the enemy on here. I'm just kidding. We're your, we're your friends to help you in a partnership with Consumer Compliance. I'm the government. I'm here to help you. Yeah, we hear it every time that you guys show up. Well, not CFPB. But anyways, uh, my name is Kevin Harrington, uh, <laughs> President CEO Chair of Lineage Bank. Uh, Lineage Bank is uh, located in Middle Tennessee. We're a smaller bank. Uh, beginning, uh, We put a group of investors together. Uh, in January 1st of 2021, acquired the smallest bank in the state of Tennessee. Uh, it was out in the West. We moved it to Middle Tennessee, where we have been banking. Uh, I feel like I was born in banking with uh, PowerPoint. So we've been banking here our entire careers. Uh, when I mean we, it's uh, my father and I have been together for quite some time working on banking. Uh, and now we uh, have a bank that has a major strategy. Uh, uh, honor banking as a service. Uh, and we also, uh, you know, we're in a great market, even though if, uh, this uh, recession may or may not happen, but Middle Tennessee is uh, a good place to be, uh, good economics. Uh, everyone seems to be moving here. Uh, so our bank is definitely poised uh, for success. Uh, for us, our balance sheet strategy when it comes to banking as a service is more along the lines of funding the uh, deposit, I mean, the loans uh, demand we have here with. Uh, High quality uh, borrowers, uh, credit worthy borrowers, uh, and it's uh, it's just a really good time. And love working with uh, Sandcat and Snaps. It's been an awesome journey so far. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Um, guys, we started talking about 
this topic separately. So a little while back, um, OCC put out a ruling around Blue Ridge. And um, if my memory serves me well, this is the first substantial ruling or first substantial position that a regulator has taken publicly around the banking as a service business. And I thought what would be very helpful or valuable for the listeners is just to break this down, which is what what does the ruling contain in its entirety? And then maybe reflect after that, um, what, what implications does it have high level for the industry? Um, Neil, maybe to start with you, I know you've been kind of like reading the document and analyzing it for a while. Uh, uh, would you mind walking us through the document, uh, maybe article by article? And then, Kevin, your reactions on that would be really helpful. And maybe we spend some time just doing that, and then we'll dive a little bit deep into each sections and then have a high-level perspective on what this means for the industry. Neil, do you want to go? Sure. Happy to do that. And and to some extent, this we'll, we'll call this like the first major consent decree related to the current generation of banking as a service. But uh, you know, the category of, of banks working with non-banks is, uh, is, goes back quite far. And there have certainly been areas where regulators have stepped in and gotten involved in programs where it was a bank and a non-bank partnering before. Um, so I guess this is the probably the flagship for current thinking of at least the OCC. Um, and I think you know when we talk about it uh, in more depth later, we probably want to give some background on on Blue Ridge as well to, to help people set a, a context on that. Um, in terms of the actual uh, decision, it, this was a consent decree. Then it was agreed upon by by Blue Ridge as well. Um, the there were basically a series of recommendations that the OCC put out and said, look, if you want to enter into any more fintech partnerships. Um, we need you to engage in these steps first, and we need you to check with us first as well uh, and go over a plan for any future fintech partnership. So the there were very prescriptive steps that the OCC expected Blue Ridge to take. And, um, you know, Kevin, being an experienced banker, I'm sure will nod his head and say, yeah, of course, you know, we expect most banks to do those things anyway. Um, so uh, nothing is, is that surprising in terms of tasks. Um, uh, you know, first and foremost, um, what the OCC was interested in was really executive and director level attention on compliance. And the way that is brought about typically in the way that the OCC wants it brought about is to have a compliance committee set up um, within the bank that then leads up to the board of directors. And they, OCC correctly said, hey, you should have at least half of your compliance committee members uh, be non, non-workers at the bank working on compliance because Overseeing yourself doesn't tend to be as effective in terms of outside perspectives on things. So if they, they the committee has to be at least three people, then they would need at least two who are not working on compliance at the bank themselves. Um, if they had five, then they would need three, et cetera. So they've got to go balance that out. Um, in terms of the other activities that the OCC was focused on, you know, there's sort of we'll call uh, three or four categories. We have uh, Bank Secrecy Act. Um, we have customer due diligence and knowing your customer. We have managing your third parties. And then we have general information technology risks. Um, so within the Bank Secrecy Act area, um, what the OCC asked for first was to say, do an assessment, um, figure out you know, what is your compliance program right now 
and where are the holes in it? What are you going to go improve? Um, and then after that, it's to then go develop an independent audit program. It's not enough for you to have your own perspective on this, but we'd like you to have some outside perspectives uh, because sometimes people don't know what they're missing. And so Article 4, Article 4 was about doing your own risk assessment. And then Article 5 was, we'd like you to go set up an audit program using some external auditors who are experts on this. Um, and then Article 6, you know, segueing directly from that is, hey, you really need to make sure you've got expert personnel in-house on BSA. Um, so we're going to basically take a look at your, your compliance personnel. Who's staffing the group? What's their relevant level of experience? Uh, not just for being at a bank, but for particularly working with the types of transactions that you're working with. Because if you're a bank and you're partnering with fintechs on, you know, let's say banking as a service, fintechs can do very different activities. Um, so you really need to focus your BSA work on the types of activities that you're actually types of transactions that you're engaged in. So going from, these are all kind of a continuum, um, you know, customer due diligence, enhanced due diligence, high risk due diligence. This was what was Article 7 in the consent decree. And the succinct description was within 90 days, the bank should implement and adhere to a risk-based set of policies and procedures and processes uh, to analyze their customers. And some customers are going to be in sort of the normal customer due diligence, some will be in the enhanced due diligence, and then some would be in the high-risk customer identification category. I think we should talk about this in, in greater depth later because it really has to be risk-adjusted. It's not that everyone should be under a high level of diligence. And the types of diligence you engage in really vary by types of transaction. Um, but this is core to being able to implement the other programs. How do you know if something is suspicious if you don't even know who you're doing business with? Um, and in the case where if you're a bank and it's a fintech that has the customer relationship, it's okay if the fintech finds that out, but you've got to work with fintechs that actually have that capability um, and, and have built it in. You can't just assume that it's being done. Um, so going into Article, Article 8 um, goes into suspicious activity monitoring, where essentially banks are deputized uh, to be law enforcement, uh, whether they want to or not. Banks have privileges and they have responsibilities, and this is definitely the responsibility category um, where banks are expected to file what are known as SARS, a suspicious activity report, when they see certain types of behaviors going on that might be a signal of money laundering or terrorist financing or other activities that are not proper. So there's two components to the OCC consent degree with Blue Ridge that relate to SARS and suspicious activity reporting. Uh, so Article 8 says... Um, I'd like you to set up, uh, make sure you've got your monitoring and reporting program in place. And then once you have it um, or you've improved it, I need you to look backwards because I'm concerned that you might have missed some things over time. Uh, so take whatever your new enhanced processes are and go backwards over time. And this, uh, Kevin, Kevin probably sees this on a day-to-day -day basis, is you're supposed to be able to look back over time anyway over your transactions because any one transaction might not be suspicious you're supposed to look for patterns over time, potentially. Uh, so it is expected that you have some type of, of look back anyway. Um, and then towards the latter part of the consent decree, uh, the OCC started delving into um, so this general category of information technology controls. And this can apply to working with fintechs. It can apply to really any vendor. It can apply to your core banking system. Um, and you, you basically have to go manage your IT activities in, in a careful way 
I've also worked in enterprise software, and you know, frankly, enterprise software clients have these same types of of concerns and uh, perspectives on things. Who have to go meet compliance programs, and there's a series of external checks you can go do that we see throughout the business world. You know, system of controls and checking your key vendors because basically, uh, when you're dependent upon a major IT program, the whole experience is like a big chain, and any one link in the chain that breaks, that's it. Any other link that was strong, it doesn't matter because the one link is broken. And that's why you need to start applying this, this scrutiny to someone else who's in the middle, who's a third party potentially, providing some IT services to you, or maybe your own people. You've got an IT subsidiary doing things, and you want to make sure you don't have a weak link in the chain there. Um, and then, you know, there's sort of general board responsibilities, uh, you know, run your board effectively, have proper oversight bank, and then please, 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 or, you know, call us up. Uh, you need our approval before you enter into another fintech partnership. Neil, thank you for that. I reading through this whole document and just seeing the public commentary on this. <laughs> um, it was doing this for a while. It was extremely hard for me to reconcile as to what is egregious about this or what actually is blowing up the industry because it seemed like. And Kevin would love to hear your opinion on this. All this is table stakes. Like this is mm-hmm. basic stuff, basic infrastructure that a bank has to set up if they're going to be operating programs through third parties and yep. nothing here seems egregiously off but kevin what are what are your reactions you know uh, you know several reactions i guess my first one and something we'll never find out was you know being in banking long enough you, you understand that when you have a regulatory action against you it usually comes up in steps right you know whether it's uh, some findings and maybe an mou then maybe a formal written agreement so kind of wondering how this happened if it came from out of like Instantly, or there were warnings ahead of time. Um, I will never know. I have that. a theory on that, Kevin. <laughs> Love to hear your theory. <laughs> what, what? It ties into it ties into you know who's the bank and what's going on, right? So, yeah. um, a theory I've heard from people who know a lot about these topics is, hmm, well, what what exactly was Blue Ridge Bank doing recently? Among other things, we can see that they were working on a merger, and ooh, the merger was called off. Well, when you work on a merger, you do things like uh, undergo extra scrutiny from your banking regulator. That's so true. it's kind of like raising your hand, look over here, look over here. Uh, so, you know, maybe had they not been uh, going through a merger and having to go trot out all their paperwork and all their programs, this might have been discovered later. It, it doesn't change the concerns that they had, but they essentially volunteered to be under extra scrutiny in that setting. Oh, that's a very, very good point. Um, you know, also, there's been a lot of discussion from... Uh, you know, all the regulatory agencies when it comes to banking as a service and fintech oversight. But I, I feel like this, and sorry that uh, Blue Ridge is having to go through this, but I do feel like this written agreement somewhat lays out a blueprint of banks that are mm-hmm. interested. And in, in, Neil, I'm taking something you said in the previous meeting, um, so I'm stealing your idea here. Uh, <laughs> this is somewhat of a, a, somewhat of a blueprint of what you should have in place. And as I was mm-hmm. studying the um, this formal written agreement uh, for this uh, podcast, uh, one of the things that you know struck me is you know where is where is our bank at on when it comes to these things uh, you know we're we're still developing our program so uh, we don't we didn't have the you know live fintech activity that uh, Blue Ridge did mm-hmm. but you know it, it struck me you know this is getting a lot of attention and you know directors of some of our bank directors and holding company directors have said a few things about this so you know one of the things I've already 
made as my takeaway, we're applicable. I'm going to take this um, written agreement and do uh, uh, put a group together within the bank so they can give uh, responses as to where we are and where we're going. So it's very transparent to our, our, our directors. And obviously, if you give it to the board, the examiner see mm-hmm. it. So I think that's one of the things we want to do. It'll just help us make sure that we are continuing to move in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's exactly the right approach. And there's, you know, fortunately, there is great detail in the exam manuals for all these activities are, are public. It's not a secret what you should do to go comply with this. Um, it, instead, you could go pull out the exam manual and run your own miniature in-house exam and go take a look. Where, where am I in X or Y? And I think that the, the harder part, the judgment part that, you know, that comes with the fact that you're an experienced banker, for example, is where you say, oh, well, I need to risk adjust all these activities because there's not a hard and fast answer of uh, thou shalt always research customers a certain way. It really depends on the type of activities you're, you're involved in with them. So if you're partnering with a fintech, it's fine. You just have to be conscious of what's the activity I'm partnering with them on. Is it an activity I'm, I'm up to snuff on? Yeah. You know, yeah. Okay, please talk. go ahead. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. I remember the first time I was going part of a, an exam years ago my first one, uh, and they said, go read the exam manual. I started mm-hmm. and fell asleep. Um, <laughs> but, you know, with that said, you know, one of the things we talk about is talks in here is, the, you know, the due diligence on the, um, the fintech itself. And that's, you know, kind of interpret that as maybe like building a credit file, building a due diligence package mm-hmm. like you would a loan um, and have that, you know, kind of risk reward, take a look at it, what are what, what kind of, you know, underwriting standards from a lending standpoint, not that we would just compare this to how you do a due diligence package. If you have that mindset in preparing to whether you're talking to a BAS provider or uh, a fintech, I, I think that's a start in the direction to have. And obviously these, you know, if you have a, a relationship that is um, long enough, it needs to be reviewed on a regular basis, probably annually, or maybe even more so often in the beginning. So I, I still completely agree with some of the things we found in here. And I do really like the idea of the concept of getting a, a due diligence kind of package for each fintech and, you know, make that along the lines of you'd have a credit package uh, for any mm-hmm. large loan and monitoring it appropriately with any covenants or anything of that nature. So, um, yeah, that's something that we are, we are definitely have heard before. And I think this reinforces that and something we're uh, doing here at the, our bank. Yeah, I actually think the fintech partnerships create an opportunity as well. So we can see here, you know, you had a checklist. It was an expensive checklist for the bank, but they were supposed to get the checklist to follow the checklist anyway. Um, this reminded me of uh, in the in the crypto world, we've ended up having several crypto companies uh, having some uh, head banging against the the SEC, and uh, there was one uh, BlockFi that eventually they reached a settlement with the with the SEC, but and uh, essentially consent decree. And, but boy, those were expensive instructions to go get. Um, the thing that I, I actually like about uh, banks partnering with fintechs is it is a way, I think, for the bank to go up its game. Because some of the fintechs, like a Synapse, have been working at this for a long time and making some huge investments in automating uh, compliance, um, basically. So if you're, depending on the volume at your bank, you might not be doing the same volume as some of the fintech programs, but Synapse is working with, with those type of folks. So uh, and, and there are other, you know, several other banking as a service companies that have also, you know, been making heavy investments in this category. So in some ways, it actually is a way to get a snapshot of, you know, possibly what is a really uh, best of breed or an up to date system to go keep track of certain transactions, for example, or verify certain types of identity that any one bank uh, might be challenged to go make the investment in. But 
you know, an entity that's doing banking as a service running across multiple programs has made a larger investment in. Yeah, I think and it seems like this this letter carves out enough space for using third parties, except all OCC is saying is have a strong IT control program yep, yep. that you have strong oversight over this. So not everything has to be done by the bank, but it has to have the right checks and balances along the way. Yeah, I think actually you'd be hard pressed to do some of these things um, within, oh, totally. yeah. within the bank itself. And and it was interesting because the the head of the OCC, the, who's an, you know the acting comptroller, has actually given some commentary on on this topic. So the OCC said um, there's at least ten OCC regulated banks that have BAS partnerships across nearly fifty fintechs. So it's not like this is the only bank doing this. Um, and the OCC said the the, the OCC said the vast majority of these banks have less than 10 billion in assets, and one-fifth of them have less than 1 billion in assets. Um, so this isn't new, but when you start looking at a bank that has you know, less than a billion in assets, less than 10 billion in assets, I know this sounds like a big number for you and I and what we spend on lunch, but um, you know, compared to some banks are much, much larger than that, um, you really do need to use third parties. Getting back to your, your, your comments, if you wanted the best of breed, it wouldn't be something you developed in-house. Um, you wouldn't have the budget to go hire all those people to go develop all of that, number one. And then number two, there's like this big data information um, situation where, you know, for example, pattern matching. If you just looked at your own transactions, that's a really limited data set to go look for patterns over. Mm -hmm. If you started to aggregate this over, you know, more banks and more transactions, you'd actually be much better at figuring things out. Uh, so you, you'd be tremendously better at it partnering with a third party. Totally. Yeah. I think um, partnering, uh, partnering with uh, the third party or the bank is service providers, you know, it allows a community bank, which is typically the one of the best uh, places uh, to be involved in being a sponsor bank for numerous reasons, especially being below the $10 billion for interchange income. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it allows that, uh, you know, bank and our bank in particular to expand our, expand our customer base well outside our demographic areas. Now, there's obviously risk associated with that, and we need to handle that uh, appropriately. But it, I think that's a big plus. It allows us to expand out of our, where we are. Um, and so, as long as handled correctly from risk compliance, operations, and IT, I mean, that's just a win-win for everybody. Yeah, I think you can really diversify your risk, too, because you, I know you, you talked about things are pretty strong right now in Middle Tennessee right now, but uh, things can change in different geographies, and not every bank is in Middle Tennessee. So, uh, in some ways, if you're working with a fintech and they've got this sort of national draw and they're bringing in programs from all over, you actually do diversify your risk as well. It does feel like every bank is here in Middle Tennessee, but that's totally another <laughs> competitive discussion. Uh, yeah, it's very competitive here uh, locally. What are we doing in California, Sinkit? Yeah, I have, I, have, I have no Let's clue. Let's go to Tennessee. Yeah, I have no clue why Tennessee has become... Um, Kind of an interesting central zone for some of this stuff. Uh, I could I could explain some of that because of Synapse, because like we started there, but not all of it, because not all of the partners um, are in this business because of us. Like there are partners that have been in this business independent of Synapse, but they're still in Tennessee, which is interesting. So we're in um, a county just south of uh, the Nashville County, Davidson County. Uh, you know, the chamber does its own statistics and shows, you know, where people are moving from. And I think the, the top five or six counties of people moving uh, into the county I live in 
they all came from the LA area and not lower Alabama. Uh, then after you go that, it hits, it hits a few more other areas of California and then goes on to uh, New York, New Jersey, and Illinois. So there's definitely a big movement towards uh, Middle Tennessee uh, for well, various reasons. And one of, we're my, also- one of my friends uh, is about to go, uh, I think he might sell his uh, private equity owned company one of these days. And he says, hmm, it seems to be a very favorable tax regime for me to go earn money. <laughs> Yeah, well, we're one of the, I live in Tennessee. We're one of the three states in the country that doesn't have a state income tax, so that is a difference maker right there. Yeah, totally. Going back to this OCC ruling, um, something struck um, as a little odd and fundamental to me. It's uh, setting up a compliance committee, having a BSA and risk assessment program, and having an IT control program and having a suspicious activity monitoring program. It seems like OCC's commentary is not that there were inadequacies in the ongoing practice. It's more so at a very fundamental mm-hmm. level, some things weren't even drafted. How that that sounds off. Like how could you be in this business and not have those capabilities already at least drawn out. Like it could be that your written program's insufficient for the bass business, but here it seems I, like they didn't have one at all. I think that's I think it's more likely the scenario that you just you just hinted at though, which probably is insufficient because if I engage in certain types of transactions with uh, Mr. Jones down the street or whatever it is in my local catchment area, I'm not engaged in the same transactions as uh, you know, suddenly I might be doing with a fintech. And if we we jump into, you know, Let's look at, at at Blue Ridge in particular. Not that I have insight that is uh, beyond what's publicly available, but you know, if we look at well, who are they partnering with? For example, um, one of the companies that I, I read about that they were partnered with was doing um, it was basically trying to help people in the BRICS, which was like uh, you know Russia, India, China, and what's our B Brazil uh, engage in banking in the United States. Well, that wasn't like the normal catchment you know area for customers who are wandering in the door. But that's what this fintech was doing. So the program might have been tool- tooled for customers they know or customers they can easily verify. And you don't have the same know your customer <laughs> abilities when all of a sudden the customers are coming in from these other countries. Um, and it, shortly before or after the OCC consent decree, this other startup announced it was shutting down. But it, it was listed as one of the startups that was working with Blue Ridge Bank. Yeah. Um, so their their whole program might not have been originally oriented towards the type of business that was coming in with their partnerships. Which 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 begs me to ask a question, and I think I might be biased as I'm asking it, given I've taken a position on it. Should Bass be regulated? Like, given there is this third party onboarding impact, which is. I'm bringing customers to Lineage mm-hmm. and a Bass provider is bringing customers to Blue Ridge. How much of this responsibility should be divided between the Bass provider and the bank partner? When you say Bass being regulated, are you talking about uh, companies like yourself? Yeah, Cal, companies like Synapse. Yeah, we're the aggregators think- at the end of the day. We're the ones bringing you all these customers. So in a way, we're saying we will we will do certain things for you, but... We don't. We don't have a lot of skin in the game at the end of I mean, the day. If you if you kind of align this with the uh, big core providers, right? They're they're constantly mm-hmm. uh, being regulated. So and having yep. through exams. So I think 
that would probably be a um, natural kind of involvement of this, that the, the big uh, players in the game that at least have some additional regulatory scrutiny. And I think right now the uh, regulators want the, the banks to monitor the monitor who monitors the monitor. Uh, and, and so uh, I think that's just where we're going. As far as, you know, this, um, some of the things they had in this written agreement, especially when it comes to compliance com committee and programs and things of that nature, that's just banking as general, right? Uh, I don't mm -hmm. think anyone's ever survived a regulatory no, review no. that didn't say improved documentation. Uh, what we say? <laughs> well, he, uh, here, here it said write the documentation, not improve but, it. So, but you know, I will say it's that a, we it's have an found, oral tradition. <laughs> yeah, we have found out as we uh, go through here, and this is where we're hitting. That I mean, what you do for the customer that comes walks in the door, and what you do for your uh, fintechs is completely different. Uh, so it is, it is appropriate to have separate policies that, that govern that. So we have a list of a whole bunch of banking as a service policies and KYC requirements that wouldn't necessarily even make sense to apply okay. that to the guy that walks in the, on, on the bank branch around the street. It, it's, it's funny, Sankit, your, your comment uh, of, you know, or your question, you know, should these be regulated, really mirrored uh, a comment by the acting comptroller. Um, and I, I have been reading some of his, his statements recently, uh, Mr. Sue. And he, he had said in November 2021, he said uh, he was talking about fintechs and non-bank entities involved in the financial services. And his statement was, these synthetic banking providers, he calls SBPs, operate out of the reach of bank regulators and free of bank rules, such as capital requirements, bank consumer protection laws, and the Community Reinvestment Act. And... Um, I actually disagree with that statement. Well, uh, he's pointed out to three <laughs> things that are like ex ex exceptionally punitive, like having a fintech abide by CRA, it's going to completely break the business model. Um, well, so we've, we've had, um, you know, some banks themselves be virtual. Yeah. And in many cases, the question is, you know, so you do CRA, what's your community? And in some cases, they've had to make a synthetic community somewhere, or we'll just pick a community arbitrarily that we go touch <laughs> um, to go support. Um, there's a, a company that that I had uh, worked at before um, called Smart Biz Loans, and what they do is they work with banks. Yeah. They're a fintech, and um, they found as a result of Smart Biz working with the banks is they were actually able to greatly improve the community reinvestment activities of the banks. Because by being digital and bringing fintechs involved, they're actually helping communities that were otherwise underserved. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't know if it officially qualified as CRA, but it, it had the net result of doing what the CRA hopes to go do. But the, my, the reason I, I brought up the, the quote by Sue is I don't think it's accurate that these are not regulated. Um, for example, he says that they're they're free of bank consumer protection laws. That's just flat out wrong. It's false. Yeah, that's, uh, it's that's not a true. false statement. Um, yeah. Because the consumer protection laws apply regardless of whether you're a bank or not. Yeah. And the CFPB, I mean, that was the whole part of the purpose of creating the CFPB was the bank said, hey, it's an unfair playing field. We're so regulated and the non-bank, the shadow banks are not. And so part of the big win for the banks in creating the CFPB was Hey, they can equally regulate non-banks. They don't care whether you're a bank or not. They just go enforce the consumer protection laws. Yeah. So that statement is, you know, right out there, not true. And then if you go into things like capital requirements, so we we see this in, um, you know, where does a capital requirement matter? So if we pick a fintech example, let's say stable coins, right? Stable coin is where I'm promising that this coin is exchangeable for X or Y. 
Um, and there have been regulators going after some of the stablecoin providers uh, who are misleading people about uh, what is the capital that's backing my stablecoin. And we've actually seen uh, you know, yeah. enforcement activities by the regulators in that regard. So that, that's another area where it's not a true statement that there, there are no requirements. You're not allowed to false advertise, for example. Well, I think if you take the spirit of the statement, which probably is an extrapolation, but to me, it seems like there is a lot of value in having some regulatory body govern and regulate at least the bank and the service provider, if not the fintech, around BSA AML mm-hmm. and basic IT yeah. practices, given yeah. and like unusual activity reporting, like basic things that are so transactional that you have to do on a day-to-day basis, expecting the bank to be the responsible party every single time is probably not the that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like they, they should be responsible as well, but if they're the only ones responsible. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the way it's going, the banks are responsible for everything. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you, those comments that these fintechs are not regulating. I mean, these there's fintechs are not, don't have bank charters, right? So the, the checking account has got to be at a bank, and which is regulated. So that was a um, confusing statement. My, one of my uh, favorite uh, phrases uh, is uh, you can delegate authority, but you can't delegate responsibility. That's so true. Uh, yep. So, you know, that, that gets back to the bank can have the fintech help, but the bank is still on the hook. And you know, think of it like joint and several liability. But, you know, I think what um, is lost by those statements of, you know, these are unregulated parties is there's a long history of the bank regulators themselves regulating non-bank entities. And Kevin, you brought this up as an example where, you know, like an FIS or Jack Henry will go have exam teams checking stuff out. And basically, it's, it's under the FDI Act. Um, it, there's this concept of an institution-affiliated party. And in, in many cases, this uh, basically, if you are an institution-affiliated party, it means you're affiliated with a regulated institution like a bank, and you're, you could be regulated too. You're under the thumb and control and the scrutiny of the banking regulators. And in many cases, if you go read enforcement actions um, against an IAP, an institution-affiliated party, they're against individuals. And it's some, some person worked at a bank and engaged in bad activities, and the bank regulator might say, you're banned from banking, just like we hear about people being banned from the securities industry. Um, but in other cases, the bank regulators have applied uh, their jurisdiction over institution-affiliated parties to actual fintech entities. And there's a series of enforcement actions going back over time. I, you know, the one example is uh, the FDIC uh, had an action against a company called Freedom Financial, which is a fintech uh, as an institution affiliated party. Um, and the, the the FDIC determined that well, they violated uh, laws related to unfair and deceptive practices. And the bank itself was was actually a different bank, um, but the FDIC went after the the fintech company. So the, the regulators actually have the power right now um, to go after this, and they have in the past. So um, I don't know if this is like a big push for more power for the bank regulators or a good way to complain. I mean, there's other examples. There's, um, you know, Nova Bank was gone after before as an IAP, uh, you know, because it was an information services provider. Um, there was an action against Hire One in the, in the student loan, you know, business. Again, not a bank. But uh, the bank regulators actually went after them before. So in my view, and maybe this is because I'm a former regulator, uh, 
<laughs> I think, yeah, they're regulated already. And I know the CFPB has made an announcement more recently that said, hey, we take a very broad view of who's engaged in consumer financial services. And, um, you know, you might be a tech company out there that is going and sourcing customers for certain these products. And if you're engaged in anything more than a ministerial activity, meaning you're just doing what you're told, um, and you're helping make decisions and, and find customers, we're going to look at you too. Yeah. You know, you, you got to go ahead. Tim, Kevin, no, sorry. Kevin, please go ahead. I was going to say, you got to wonder. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I feel like you're seeing a lot of these fintechs, uh, they're obviously aligned with community banks for numerous reasons. And then you, uh, which I think are, are starting to put a, a, a noticeable dent into the big banks. And you see some of the big banks, you know, expressing concern and wanting to see the the fintechs regulated, but you, you take a look back where the motivation may be, and it may be along the lines of, hey, these guys are stealing all of our customers. Community banks have a place and they're over, <laughs> overstepping their place uh, and we, we want it back. So, you kind of wonder, is there mm -hmm. any influence uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, you know, lobbyist poli political ac activity, whatever, PACs, um, to see, you know, this increased regulation just to make it tougher. Now, I do think it needs to, we need to have regulation, no question about it. But um, you got to wonder if there's some underlying motivation there. I, I do, however, think that the overall Blue Ridge OCC letter, and not talking about OCC's public statements, some of them are interesting, but just the letter was fair. Like everything in there made total sense. Like, if, Oh, yeah. Yes, I completely agree with you. It does make a total sense. And as I said earlier, it's a blueprint and we're going to go uh, compare ourselves to it, make sure we're in the, the business where we need to. I'm just more alluding to some of the, the comments you're hearing from the CFPB or the OCC uh, higher ups when they uh, wanted to push, you know, scrutiny down to the fintechs. Uh, and you got to wonder, trying to stay politically correct here, uh, is there underlying you know, we want these customers back at the big banks, kind of whoever is pushing that agenda. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a rabbit hole I shouldn't go down, but just a thought. I think this is a, this is a valuable exercise. So just before we do it, like, I think for the record, we all agree. I think the letter was fair and I think it, right? Like it essentially do it was stakes. It was table stakes as you, yeah. as you describe it, which yeah. is, yeah, you should do these things regardless of who you're partnering with. <laughs> yeah. And I would go all the way to saying on the record, I think the letter is fair. Second, there are some obligations that your BAS provider should be helping you with. And there's a part of that, which is IT control program. A part of it yep. is considering if the BAS needs to be regulated so that they have to have SAR obligations and BSA obligations directly with the regulators themselves. Oh, yeah. I didn't actually touch on that in your comment, but you, you brought that up, Sanka, just a little bit earlier as an example of, you know, hey, should fintechs be regulated in that regard? And, and the answer is, yeah, they are, right? So that's under, under FinCEN, for example, right? And, um, you know, in many cases, uh, the fintechs are considered money transmitters under FinCEN. They've got to go register with well, FinCEN. Some They've got to go them. file the rules. Some of them. Well, dep depending on your activities. Totally. Uh, some of them. But but you could you could be a an art dealer and maybe have some obligations in this regard too. It's not even just fintechs. Um, the, you know, the, the growth of monitoring of different types of money movement has uh, been exponential since 9-11. Yeah. Um, and the responsibilities put on all sorts of folks in our society. Yeah. Um, so I'd say there's lots of non-banks yeah. that uh, end up having obligations in that regard. If they get regulated. 
some, someone in their food chain is regulated if they're engaged in the activity. Yeah. So something that is, is completely loud and clear uh, to be read in here is that the fintechs are indeed regulated and the expectations they're regulated by the bank they're sponsored with. Completely agree with that. Uh, we need to push that down uh, given you know the amount of fintechs and, and uh, uh, how this is moving forward. So again, aligned with what the written agreement was with Blue Ridge, yeah, I think that is one of the underlying themes here is that, hey, you have to regulate these guys too, just like uh, yeah. You would mm-hmm. as if they were your customers, but you have to monitor the monitor and sometimes go to a few deep uh, layers deeper than that. So I think yep. that is fair. So I, I, I think the expectation is for banks to regulate this. And um, I, I, I agree with that. We need to be on an extra scrutiny to make sure we, uh, you know, not having troubles coming out of these fintech customers. Yeah, totally. Now, taking this letter, which is fair and my personal opinion is that we need more regulation on the BAS and the fintech side. How do we reconcile this letter to the public commentary, which I think is like f- five to 10 knobs completely detached because there, yep. there are two kinds of commentaries that, that, are, that, are prob- that are problematic. The first one I can reconcile, which is... Uh, People who are not sophisticated in understanding banking generally speculating, what does this mean? Because it seems like bad news and bad news equals trouble and trauma and pain, and which I could reconcile. They don't, they don't know the space as well. And maybe some of them are listening to this and they are able to understand the letter a little better. The one that is puzzling to me is, to your point, Neil, the OCC commentary and subsequent commentary from what I would consider experts making this into a bigger trend than it is. So my question is like, how how do you two reconcile that? What is what is that difference in modality in both? And does that indicate anything? I, I think there's part, part part of it is uh, you know if it bleeds it leads right. So we'd like to have something sensationalist to go publish as news and get a headline. You know the world is ending for fintechs. That's a good headline. Maybe people click on that. And then there's another element that maybe is akin to what Kevin is bringing up, which is to say, hey, to the extent someone else's, you know, ox is being gored or their customers are being taken away, then they will go amplify any message that would be bad about fintechs. I mean, uh, as, as a method of uh, publicizing, yep, yep, you should only do business with uh, Citibank and JP Morgan and Wells or something like that. <laughs> I mean, that that makes sense to me for the press. That makes sense to me for the VC crowd uh, just to shrink down valuations. And that makes sense to me for somebody who failed trying to build a fintech company. But it doesn't make sense when it comes from the regulators themselves. Yeah, there's some statements by the, the acting comptroller and... Um, you know, in many ways, he seems like a level-headed guy, but some of the statements don't really add up to me. I, you know, this is another statement he made just in September of this this year, just last month. He says, he was talking about fintechs. He said, where is all this headed? For me, there's a nagging familiarity. In the 2008 financial crisis, I recall being camped out of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, seeing for the first time the wall-sized map of the shadow banking system. You know, and he goes on and on, and there was uh, all sorts of complex liabilities and he talks about commercial paper conduits, buying commercial paper from CIVs, which are buying paper from CDOs, buying paper from other CDOs, and you know he, this light bulb moment. I don't think that the role of fintechs out there is nearly the size of what we saw in the wholesale financial services markets <laughs> heading into the 2008 crisis. I mean, pick pick a big fintech. Uh, you know, oh my God, what if you know there was a problem with Chime? Well. 
All their money is stored in a normal account. (laughs) What's going to happen? There's not people gambling based on this. Yeah. So, I I mean, like, what did I hear one time? Someone said, you know, the job of the media is to sensationalize stuff and tell you how bad news is. You need to come back the next time and read it again and read more because you need more information. That's just where... The media is, and then but this, this is the comp. This is the control of the currency saying this, like exactly. Well, it does, it that's doesn't true. add up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I was just uh, commenting on Sandcats. You know, everyone's getting uh, all the commentaries we're seeing about this. You know, I mean, this has been sensationalized. There's no question about that. And whenever you do that and it grabs attention, you know, people that people choose to sometimes go to extreme opinions. I mean, not the first time we've ever seen a formal written agreement. Probably won't be. A, We'll probably see another one at some point in time that has, may has nothing to do with banking as a service, but I bet it won't gain as much attention because maybe it has to do with you know, credit risk or uh, yeah, you know, loans or something of that nature. Uh, so it's just uh, I think this has just grabbed a lot of people's attention. Uh, and, you know, if a few more happen, I don't think it's going to be a oh no, if fintech and banking as services going away. It's just going to be you know, guys, this is serious. You banks and uh, providers have to step your game up. Yeah. I think that the comptroller's comments suggest he's like worried about a bank run. And, uh, you know, what he, he actually said this. He said uh, he was looking before, this is again, 2008, at a, a system, because is his quote, a system that evolved to approximate compete with banks and was then enduring a run. And that's when, you know, the Fed had to open more windows and, you know, try to, you know, let's convert, uh, you know, Goldman and Lehman into banks and try to bail them out, things like that. Um, so we'll, we'll basically open up our, uh, money borrowing window to more than the traditional banking players, but those were all you know Wall Street folks moving large amounts of money around, and uh, you know they still do that. Of course, that's the wholesale markets. Um, if we were to take a look at at fintechs today, particularly banking as a service, and there was a quote run, well, where's all the money? The money's in the bank. Uh, you know the money should be available unless you were misrepresenting what's in people's bank account. Um, you wouldn't have any problem at all. Pick. 12 neobanks in a row that all have bank accounts somewhere and have a run on the bank. Well, they would just call up the bank where the money is <laughs> and they'd go produce the money. It wouldn't be anything at all like, you know, CDOs and AIG. Yeah, that well, comment all seemed very specific around lending. It didn't seem like, because another comment that was in the similar vein by the OCC acting chair was, Something about if you if you if you underwrite and write a loan through a fintech, it's you who's responsible as a bank. And I wonder if there is a fundamental misunderstanding around banking as a service, predominantly today being focused on deposits, not lending. Um, I think that might also that statement. One should always be careful with that because it it ties into this true lender issue as well, yeah. which is that it, you are responsible as the true lender, but at the same time, there's a long history of banks uh, selling their loans as well. And so if you had uh, some type of forward flow arrangement where you ended up selling your loans in the future, then yeah, you have a responsibility that snapshot in time. If you have a market for your loan, then um, you can defray some of your risk. Of, you know, I think a lot of the, the fintechs who work with banks have historically had the bank, the bank has still stayed involved in the loan in some, some aspect, but it, uh, they've certainly been able to defray some of the risk by selling parts of it or government guarantees or what have you. Um, so I guess maybe some truth to it, but uh, it's not as heavy of risk if you if you had someone else who was willing to bear some of the risk down the road. Yeah, I think that whole true lender situation and uh, 
issues that was once uh, addressed and that uh, regulation was rolled back. I mean, I think that's still kind of a big unknown and at some point in time we'll need some additional guidance. But then again, you know, banks, well, before this rate increase, banks and mortgage companies sell loans all the time, right? So this is, uh, you know, this to a certain extent can be somewhat, um, you know, Looked at that way. Uh, and, the you know, capital markets want it. They want yeah. they want to be able to invest in these type of instruments. Yep. I mean, when you sell a mortgage, you've got so 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 long after you sell it. If there's any problems, then the bank has to take it back. But outside of that, it's wherever it went. So uh, yeah. So and that that runs you know opposite to the statement that Sankit was describing, not his statement, but the statement yep. of the OCC that says you're responsible. It's true. You'd have some ongoing responsibility potentially. Certainly, if you erred in underwriting, um, then you might have to go buy it back out of the portfolio. Um, but if you underwrote the loan properly and you later sold it, um, unless you retained servicing rights or you've got some other responsibility related to it, uh, you wouldn't be involved thereafter, I guess. And it, it all depends on whether you're compliant at the outset by originating things. There was another statement by uh, the, the acting comptroller that also struck me as a little odd was uh, he'd said, and I think this was a recent statement in September, um, he was talking about banks and comparing them to fintechs as if it's like, you know, men are from Venus, women are from Mars or whatever the vice versa. I don't know. I forget who's from Venus and Mars, but one or the other, this was like banks are from Venus, fintechs are from Mars. And his, his statement was the technology business model is very different from the banking business model. And he, he said... LTV to CAC is different than NIM, for instance. And, uh, you know, for those who don't speak in as many buzzwords, maybe thank you. You want to describe LTV to CAC. <laughs> but, but I think it, it's, uh, it's, it's worth just, highlighting that it's, the juxtaposition it's, doesn't work. Yeah, it's a straightforward formula around lifetime value of your customer and your cost of customer acquisition. And fintechs, by and large, measure their profitability or their likelihood of being profitable based on what's their LTV to CAC ratio. The idea being you make substantially more money from an individual end user than you spend on acquiring them. Uh, which is, I hope, a very strong metric to measure success. Yeah. And, and so, so the the acting comptroller compares this to NIM, which is net interest margin. And you know, it, it that whole statement implies somehow that all banks do is loan money. And you know, Kevin, you're in this business. Like you, your your regulators want you to have fee based income as well. There's other things that banks do besides just loaning money out, right? They they yeah. they run deposit services. They help move money around. This is, regardless of fintechs, this is what banks do. If you only made money on your net interest margin, you'd be overlooking a large part of your business. And, and we, you know, you talked about community banks, right? They're looking for ways to go increase their revenue, use their banking capabilities uh, in some manner that doesn't put as much risk on the table, right? So yeah. I, I'm sure you're trying to build your business on more than just NIM. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, obviously there's... You know, you can't just be in loans without forgetting the other side of the balance sheet with the liabilities. Uh, you get carried away with that. You still have to fund them. And there's uh, other mechanisms, ratios that kick in if you're not getting uh, the quote unquote core deposits. So, yeah. And above that, yeah. You know, one of the fee income, non-interest income is a big real line item that banks care about. And at, for the most, especially in the uh, beginning days of a de novo or a turnaround scenario, that's the, mm -hmm. ultimately the thing that pushes to profitability uh, quickly been involved in a few of those so yeah you can't just it can't just be the, the margin it's if there's so much more to banking and how banks generate income 
Yeah, and, and that's somehow the, the, the acting comptroller is comparing, saying, well, banks only care about NIM. And fintechs, they care. They're looking at LTV to CAC. I'd, I'd say, you know, as a person running a bank, you, you mentioned, actually, Kevin, one of the, the examples of why you like partnering with fintechs is, yeah, we can acquire more customers at a cost-effective way. I mean, that's you just as a banker saying, yeah, I care about what it costs me to acquire customers and how much I make from a customer because I'm running, oh, my goodness, a business. I mean, banks, I, LTV. I, I, sorry, Kevin, go ahead. I'm just still scratching my head of when LTV is not loan to value. When did that change? <laughs> and, and CAC is the sound the chickens make, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, for banks, if you just model LTV to CAC, uh, it's a very high number because their cost of customer acquisition is very low. Like even if the most conservative CFO will put that in cents just on the monitoring cost, if you want to bake that in. When I was young, they gave you a toaster if you opened an account or maybe a blanket. Oh, wow. I was going to ask Kevin to maybe help us start... <laughs> some kind of a program. You want a toaster? Man. You want a toaster? I mean, I'm going to send a I, toaster I to a every toaster. end user. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you're right. The, the traditional model of banks and um, customer acquisition cost uh, is, is high. I mean, the, the number one thing that has the biggest impact on efficiency ratio uh, in the bank is the branch network. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Some of these, some of these, uh, Banks that have large branch networks, it's definitely a big hit. That's a lot of personnel costs, mm-hmm. a lot of overhead costs, uh, and then, you know, however you whether you lease or uh, own the facility. So, um, you know, I know in, in the way we're looking, how we're going to run things, we're going to have a incredibly small branch footprint. We need you still need to have some branches, but that we anticipate that making a um, significant uh, improvement on efficiency ratio um, mm-hmm. with all these other bigger banks that have. Uh, are ones that have just been around for a long time will you know always struggle with that cost of the the core banking um, when it comes to acquiring customers. Well, now you have to account for giving everybody a toaster as well. Well, it's funny when uh, you know we were starting the CFPB, and I, I'd, I'd actually worked on the bureau before it became officially bureaus during this what we call the stand up period. Um, it's uh, you know now Senator Warren was really you know, the person spearheading a lot of this, and um, her. Example in describing, you know, wh- why would we need someone regulating uh, consumer financial products from a consumer's perspective was she compared uh, financial products to physical products. And she said, hey, you wouldn't be allowed to go sell exploding toasters. <laughs> now, I don't know if she was thinking about the bank gifts of toasters when she brought that up. <laughs> Maybe she was. So going back to this, given the comments from the OCC, the fact patterns, the letter, are you all worried that this is going to become a trend? Um, a trend meaning that more lots regulators, of other community, community other banks. banks. Like, yeah. Um, I think for sure there will be scrutiny um, of, you know, various banks partnered with third parties, but there, there's always been this, this type of, of scrutiny before. Um, so I think uh, from a, you know, if I were to look at like the fintech market, I'd say, A, this probably is kind of in favor of the established banking as a service companies who've actually made the, the infrastructure investments, as opposed to some guy who says, I have an idea for a fintech and I have $27 and I'm going to go start it and partner with the bank. And, you know, we look at this, for example, the, the fintech entity that was going to go do money transmission or, or help people living in, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Um do business with U.S. banks, 
And I think their total capital raise was like a million or two million dollars. And, you know, if we compare what is what is Synapse invested, you know, in building its infrastructure, it's a lot more than that. Um, so it I think this probably means if you are a banking as a service company that helps facilitate this for fintechs, it's probably better for you because you made the investments. Uh, but it, it does make then a higher bar for someone just starting out. Yeah, that's very true. You're never going to, you know, you got the big three core providers, right? You're not going to have another big fourth uh, coming your way. But, you know, is this going to be a trend? In some ways, I hope so. I hope that more banks are entering uh, this space and I hope uh, you see some increased regulation. Um, this needs to happen. Uh, and I love the term that everybody used to describe the space as the ecosystem. Uh, this needs to happen in the space simply because for the banks that are within or doing BAS, there's somewhat of an outlier right now. But if we get more banks and a little bit more bringing it up to light, it it will help, you know, those that do that, not necessarily be the the standout that the for the ones that, that don't. Um, and, and, you know, I'll, I'll also take this a, another step and say a pretty obvious comment. A lot of um, community banks have problems of aging management and aging board mm -hmm. and not really interested in this. And it, what's the concern for those that are not pushing forward with where um, the technology is going and what the customer preferences are. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen to those banks? They might actually have more negative implication if they're not willing to get in, into some sort of a, uh, arena like this because where they the old um, I guess business case or how traditional banks are ran that's that's fading away to a certain extent, right? You got to keep up with what's going on in the technology, what's going on. With the, customer expectations. And this is obviously clearly where everything is going. And so, you know, we need to get more banks playing the space. So we're not such an outlier, but you also got a question about the banks that are afraid of everything uh, and just waiting for maybe the next generation to take over, you know, what's going to happen to them? They're going to be left behind. I mean, we look at the neo banks and the just, you know, some of these entities that have been, I, I'm a bank. I just am not a bank. I'm kind of sitting in front of a bank. Um, and there's been a tremendous amount of customer acquisition by many of them, in part because they offered, you know, the accessibility that some of the smaller banks weren't weren't offering, you know, akin to what you're describing, Kevin. Kevin, does this whole OCC Blue Ridge thing change how you partner with fintechs? Um. I mean, yes and no. I think, you know, it's clear you need to have um, the appropriate oversight and the appropriate documentation in place uh, and the procedures and the ever-expanding uh, checklist. Um, and so, you know, for the startup fintechs that don't have a lot of capital, I think it puts them in a little bit more of a question, which is unfortunate. But we're also seeing that, you know, the, the uh, you know, the VCs, you know, um, kind of pulling back on fintech investments because there's not going to be another, more than likely there's not going to be another big chime or, or green dot or something of that nature. It's, it's more niche services right now. That is probably the best use case. So I don't know. I, yes. And no, we just need to make sure we uh, understand what our fintech, our fintechs are doing uh, and make sure we can have complete and total transparency all the way through the customer level to make sure all the uh, KYC things have done handled properly if there's any sort of um, kind of uh, flag or something that needs to be taken care of. That's, that's just increased monitoring over the fintech. So I don't think I really answered your question other than just kind of go on a, a tangent. 
I mean, you kind of did. What you're saying is increased awareness, but that doesn't really change the appetite in the market. It just means the bar is a little higher, but also it seems like it's the right decision to make was it's not. Yeah. I mean, the bar had to be raised. Yeah. That makes sense. I think particularly in the category, if we if we go back to this you know, consent order and say, well, what are they really focused on here? You know, the vast majority of the points are about like, you know, customer identification, suspicious activity reports, Bank Secrecy Act, you know, money laundering. These are all cat I mean, and mouse but- game issues that yeah. you, you need to stay up on and keep investing in. If you just said, oh, I, I solved last week's, you know, <laughs> anti-money laundering problem, they're on to the next strategy this, this coming week. So it just, they're all areas where you need to keep investing. Well, to to me, it reads far more uh, it it reads far more elemental. What the OCC is asking for is have a policy. Like, write something down, guys. It, Just it, it, it's 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 shocking if there if there really was no policy at all, especially given that they had merged with you know maybe there was some issue because they had merged with another bank, right? So Blue Ridge was smaller, and then I think in twenty twenty one it had merged with a bank to bring it up to its current. Asset size. I don't. I don't look and see if there was a merger of equals or what. But um, you know, there might be, maybe there were some integration issues combining with the other bank and knowing which policies stood on top. But between the two of them, there should have been some type of policy. Now, are you implementing it? I, I find a lot of folks who have these policy requirements uh, buy some policies on paper, but uh, putting into practice, you know, gets back to one of the other statements in in the consent decree itself, which was, hey, you need personnel. You need to go report I mean, on what, how you're doing this. Yeah, it said hire BSA officer. I feel like things here were very elemental. It's like go and hire a BSA officer, write a program, go and cross-validate the transactions you've done in the last 90 days with the program now you have written, which tells me there was no program. Yeah, um, I, I agree with oh, your uh, interpretation of the grammar. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just astounding. Uh, to to imagine that circumstance, given that there there appear to be experienced people involved at that uh, financial institution, and and they merge with another financial institution, and the concept of complying with uh, BSA rules is is not new by any means. Um, no, I mean the, the regulators, examiners are looking for a thorough policy that they agree with, and then they can also hold management accountable to uh, when it comes to that policy. So they, whether it was there or not, is you know a debate we could have, but. You know, it's, it was clear it needed to be enhanced. Yeah, it was definitely insufficient. There was something missing. <laughs> the policy is um, what was missing. But but That's I think in, in, in part, it could be a policy as related to what the fintech is bringing to the table. Because if we look at all those, you know, BSA, SARS, et cetera, they're all related to context, like um, oh, risk, totally. risk, yeah. risk adjusted. So totally. uh, maybe you weren't doing business with people from other countries before that often. And now you are. Um now you start to need, for example, other types of databases to even validate these people because you're not going to go get that from uh, you know, knowledge-based authentication from uh, you know Experian or TransUnion or whatever. Totally. You. Yeah, I think I think historically the policy, and I'm just guessing here, was more so whatever the core bank did. Which, to your point, credit pulls, looking at um, suspicious flags and things like that. And for this line of business, it was pretty much flying blind. Is my assessment, which is. Whatever the best does, uh, that's what we do. And there's nothing written there. And it seemed like that's the piece that OCC came in and said, one, we're surprised by. Second, write something and submit it to us. Yeah, I find there, there's there's the challenge of how do I, you know, let's look at customer identification, right? So one challenge is I got to hit the databases. The other challenge is I, I want to go screen my customer then against things like, you know, the OFAC list. So 
Are you a, you know, a specially designated you know, entity of some sort? The challenge is there's a lot of, you know, we'll call bad actors out there who have, unfortunately, like common names. And yeah. um, there are many other people who have the same name as the bad actor who themselves are not bad actors. And you get into some challenges with how do I disambiguate? Uh, and then you need even more processes. You know, yes, I checked against the OFAC list, but I found 12 other people with the same name. How do I disambiguate this person from that person? And it starts to be risk adjusted. So now as I'm, it, previously I could say, well, the other, the, the bad guy is in, uh, I don't know, pick, pick, your, pick your other country. And uh, my customer's in Cleveland. So, you know, I'll just distinguish it. Well, now you have, uh, you're, you're actually in some other country. How do I go disambiguate that I, I'm not dealing with the bad actor? Yeah, I think the things I would have like found to be not as surprising was go and update your policies or slash and go and ensure you're accurately enforcing your mm -hmm. policies. But here the tone was go and write the policies. And, you know, maybe this is um, kind of akin to what Kevin was mentioning earlier, which is like, hey, this is good instruction sheet. You know, I, I think that this was perhaps written in a manner that said, uh, yeah, we'd like this to be a checklist for everyone. Totally. Uh, so yeah. in that case, it might be more pedantic or prescriptive than usual. Uh, saying, which, is, which is great because it's literally saying if there's any bank who wants to get into this, this is a yep. really good playbook. You can just follow this and make sure you feel relatively prepared and notify your regulators. Yeah, and we care about what's in the exam manual. Now, it's important to, to think about, you know, this is the OCC, right? Um, a lot of the banks that uh, might work with uh, fintechs are not even OCC banks, right? Yeah. The, this was a national association, but you've got lots of state chartered banks and okay. they're FDIC members. They may or may not be a Fed member. Um, we haven't seen a broad statement about the FDIC on this, but we also do know FDIC is very concerned about safety and soundness, for example, most of all. You know, that's that's their, their biggest guiding light. So um, you could expect the FDIC has a view on this topic. And we know for sure that the CFPB has a view on even non-banks. The CFPB has not shown a, a drop of hesitation uh, to go after non-bank players in the in the fintech world. I mean, it's it's you know FDIC, OCC, Federal Reserve Bank. You know, they're all typically on the same page. Not every single page matches, right? They all have a little different opinions here and there. I've been exposed to all three of them, uh, but for um, the, you know, kind of this level of written agreement. Uh, that came out. Um, I can't see the, the FDIC or Federal Reserve Bank taking a significantly different stance. Um, you know, what will the stances they take together evolve? Most likely it has to. Uh, but I would expect that, the, you know, you're not going to see the three of them disagreeing because then you're going to see banks jump charters and that's not really good for the Well, you can't, you can't jump to the OTS either. anymore. Well, I, I didn't name the OTS, but yeah, nor did I even talk about the credit union side. So. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if we have any stories of banks and credit unions switching back and forth in their uh, affiliations there. You'd have to really change your ownership structure. But I, I do agree that they're coordinated. And, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, Kevin, reading the exam manual. You know, that's largely an FFIEC publication, which is a collaboration of all the regulators. Um, so that alone is going to be synced up. I just think there's probably accents or additional emphasis among certain regulators. And historically, the OCC has been very interested in 
um, you know, for example, banks, you know, being profitable and, and such. Uh, the FDIC, which, you know, has to pay the bill if you blow up, has been more <laughs> concerned about safety and soundness. And then the Fed has other missions, if you will, um, which is, you know, for example, to have a robust economy <laughs> or deal with inflation. So the Fed has these other considerations as well, or maybe access to credit, for example. The Fed would care more about that. And then certainly on the, the CFPB side, uh, they do care about access to credit, um, but they also care about not giving out credit that's going to blow people up. Yeah. But given OCC, Fed, and the FDIC are like three primary regulators in, mm-hmm. in this construct, other areas seems like what I'm hearing is, by and large, they should all align to this blueprint. There might be an emphasis on one or the other, which is a little bit more magnified in case of one over the other. But this is still a generally safe blueprint to follow. It doesn't matter which one is a regulator, right? Yeah, I would say the bigger concern for the uh, regulatory bodies that I would have, and this applies for anything that's new, is, you know, uh, we all know there's a shortage of and finding qu- good quality people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, the, uh, the, the regulatory bodies, you know, uh, you know, how many, how, how much talent do they have to start examining the banks that are involved yeah. in that? And, you know, and if, you know, I mean, I'm sure everyone has their story about being involved with the examiner who uh, didn't actually have the talent and maybe overreacted where it didn't make any sense, but the bank still had to handle it. So I think that, that is another concern, um, but um, and hopefully that the, they will they'll get that under control um, as soon as possible. I mean, they could they could hire optimists from Tesla, right? Like, isn't that isn't that the new labor force, the robot? Um, oh. Well, if you've ever played with any machine learning, it's uh, <laughs> as good as those who train it. So <laughs> I'm not sure who's training the uh, the optimists or, or or the machine learning on this, right? So you could have right. you you don't need physical machines and. Um, that actually related to your, your comment, Senkit, is for a while we've seen uh, automation software be called, quote, robotic process automation, RPA. That's a whole category of SaaS. Mm-hmm. And people say, where's the robots? Where's the robots? And it's not really robots. It's just software doing things. We, we thought we'd put a robot name on it and be cute. But So did I hear uh, Sankat say that uh, examiners and regulatory regulators act like robots? No. Is that what no, I, he, I you know, he, he thought they could He thought they could train the, train the robots. Uh, the recommendation is the banks hire the robots. Maybe your BSA officer would be an Optimus bot. Like, I don't know. Well, future. that's why I'm saying it's a software a software bot, you know, really is trying to do it in a way. The, the challenge is that you've got to go train. My, I had a business be, not too long ago that was a machine learning business. And you can keep training uh, the machines. You know, if you, if you think an algorithm is going to go catch things, right? Um, the algorithm can be trained and trained and tuned and tuned to, for example, not hit false positives. But unless you actually have a human in the loop, you don't know what you're missing in the, uh, you know, what we call the recall category of machine learning. So you still That's need fair. human experts in the loop. Um, otherwise, you've optimized for a non-realistic, you know, data set. You don't know what you're missing. It's kind of a, as the unknown unknowns. Well, I I think that's fair to say, and like starting as a joke, but getting serious about it, automation does give you massive leverage um, as like a banking service provider and also as banks that work with us. Um, mm-hmm. But there's an element of human oversight that that is that is still needed. I think there there are ways to start tapering that down uh, with modern inv- uh, uh, advancement, especially like 
a lot of the times you can train an adversarial network to be able to catch and detect some of the recalls that you can get from like just a regular generative model. Um, but we're still pretty early and maybe that's like another yeah, we're podcast. Still, we're still we should dependent do. on the, the genius of the machine. Uh, that's the adversary, if you will, the red team. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's like a good way to set up and we've thought about this even internally, um, like an adversarial network on false positives and true positives. Um, but you have to have some theoretical improvement on the adversarial network, which is the adversarial network needs to be at least like few percentage points, if not more superior than whatever your actual model is that is that is generating mm -hmm. the outcomes. Exactly. Um, it's like mathematically possible to do. Um, and it's realistic now to do that versus not as well. But Maybe not, not, every, not everything fits in the chess game of all the variables you're you're manipulating or the system's able to go manipulate. I think in uh, a lot of the stuff in banking could be could be simplified and automated. Uh, not all of it, but a lot of it can be, and increasingly more and more over time. Yeah, I've, I've, you just got to go to the next the next level, uh, though. Of okay, well, so and so sent in a transaction; they're legitimate. Well, it turned out that they were tricked into doing the transaction. Right? We're, we're actually seeing this in P two P fraud right now, yeah. as well, where it's not. Um, it might not be the issue that it was a fraudulent actor setting up the transaction. It was just uh, improperly induced. I mean, uh, the the historic um, the historic troubles that have technically plagued the industry are are a little different. Kind of like um, you used to have all the payment data sit in different source like sources of truths. Like depending on if it was an ACH or if it was a check transaction or if it was a card transaction and reconciling all of that in one continuous transaction stream was close to impossible technically. So you could never do a continuous variable analysis on transactions until very recently, like literally until now, when you have a BAS that has a core banking system, you cannot technically do this exercise. And I know City and all of them have claimed they've spent a lot of money in unifying their transaction streams behind the scenes. But that's like the first technical hurdle, which is more logistical than machine learning. After that, the updates are relatively incremental, which is you can treat this as a continuous variable. And then to your point, Neil, train different models over time to detect money laundering or detect yep. account takeover and a bunch of these different things. But I think there's enough data to be able to make this far more meaningful than we have historically. Yeah. And that's if we go take a look at, you know, money spent on anti-terrorism, you know, research, right? That's what they're doing. Totally. I'm going to suck down a lot of data and I'll start looking for patterns because I have more data and I can go try to identify. I mean, that's in our in our crypto world as well, right? So uh, we're trying to figure out who's who's the bad guy's wallet. Okay. Well, we need to basically... They don't have a bad guy name on the wallet, so instead we have to study flows in and out, and you know where does it fit in the overall broader network? Yeah, I feel like there's a new podcast brewing here, so I think maybe we should do another one <laughs> on just one on automation, aut machine learning, just, just automation um, for banking. I think that might be a useful exercise. But guys, I I really appreciate both of you joining us today and kind of like sharing your perspective on this. Um, to summarize this, like. It seems like we all align that um, the ruling seems fair and straightforward. I think still we're we're speculating what the public comments really <laughs> imply or mean in one area, uh, but this gives a good good blueprint for everybody to follow, right? 
Yeah, it does. Completely agreed. One day, maybe one day we'll find out the story behind the story because there's always one there. Oh, uh, I'm sure. That, that would that would help. Yeah, we could have we could have just got this list if we just pulled out the exam manual. Oh, no, yeah. we would have fallen asleep. <sighs> well, yes, maybe maybe that was that was the real answer was people keep falling asleep in the exam manual. We need this in a separate document attached to an SEC filing and then people freaking wake up and read the exam manual. That's not what I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, thanks thanks a lot for joining us. Um and for everyone who's listening, thank you so much for listening to the episode. Uh, have a great day. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Under the Hood. And a special thanks to our guests as well. If you like the podcast, please go to synapsefi.com slash under the hood to subscribe. Thanks again. See you next time. Did you know a podcast episode like this can provide literally dozens of marketing content assets for your business? It's brought to you by Content Monster, your go-to for engaging marketing content like this podcast or remote video production. It's not just a podcast. It's your marketing powerhouse. Visit ContentMonsta.com to learn more. That's ContentMonsta.com.